Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. I'm here with Alex Fortson. It's November 14th, 2023. We're at August Sellers in Newburgh. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, of course. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. First question, why wine? Why wine? That's a great question. I did not come from a family that consumed wine really in any capacity. Maybe once a year there would be like a semi-sweet Riesling or like a, I think the Fetzer brand Gewürztraminer was probably on the table a handful of times, like Thanksgiving, something like that. But so I didn't grow up in a wine consuming family. You know, my, my dad drinks Bud Light still to this day. Um, getting a little bit more into wine as I've kind of encouraged that over the years. But so wine for me was really more of a discovery, I think that came as I was doing other things. So you know, I, I, in my early 20s and even to now, I spend a lot of time, pretty much all my vacation time, going hiking, backpacking, climbing around. You know, I was living in California at the time, so there was a lot of time in the Sierra, or I would go travel to go to the Grand Canyon or go up to the Wind River Range in Wyoming. And um, one such trip, I went to the Alps in Austria to go on a multi-day kind of climbing, hiking, backpacking trip. And the rocks are really sharp and I had like a lot of cuts and bruises on my body when I was done and I wanted to kind of place to go chill and heal and I was planning on spending a little bit of time in Italy. And so I found this little farmhouse that had like a saltwater swimming pool on top of the hill and they made some organic uh, wine and they were in the Chianti Classico kind of Appalachian zone. And so I stayed there, sat by the pool every day and they left two bottles of their family Chianti outside the door every morning. And I would kind of sit by the pool and drink a glass or two. And I was like, wow, I really like this is my first experience of enjoying wine. I don't think I had a red wine until I was yeah, 27, 28 years old, like right around that time. And so a little light bulb went on and I was like, okay, so now as I'm going out to dinner, I'm like looking at the wine list. I'm talking to the person, like what wine would be good with what I'm about to order. And, and then I came back home after that trip to Oregon and realized that there was, you know, seven or 800 wineries in the state, in the, in the Willamette Valley, in the region. And it was kind of like a wildfire situation where I went to like one or two tasting rooms when I got back, realized that I liked Pinot Noir, and then did that every weekend for probably a year. Maybe visited, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 Oregon wineries, really tried to just figure out what I liked, where good value was, where I could buy some bottles that, you know, I enjoyed that I could drink at home and read a lot, you know. And I think where, it really caught for me and, and took off is how broad the perspective of wine is or, or how many different angles I should say that you could approach it from. You could be into geology, you could be into history, you could be into food, you could be into the restaurant scene, you could be into plant material. And just like I work with a grower who's a world champion bonsai pruner. There's so many inroads into the wine community, right? It could get you, like I said, it could get you through food, it could get you through rocks, it could get you through you know, just working with plants. And I think for me, and so many other people that work in the wine trade, we have a diverse collection of interests maybe before we approach the wine trade or even consider it professionally. If you grew up in a family that consumed wine, maybe you, you know, thought about it, went off to be a 
architect or a photographer or you know a graphic designer or whatever and then wine came to you later I think there's a lot of different inroads and for me what was so nice is I had many of those right like I, I've always loved geology and rocks because I've, I've spent a lot of time outdoors I spent a lot of time climbing like I like the difference between granite and limestone even from that perspective and then getting into wine was another way to explore rocks it was another way to explore plants like I'm a pretty avid gardener I like to grow my own vegetables I have a lot of plants in the house and so wine was another way to interact and experience plants and how they grow and offer fruit and all that and so I think that's probably for me where it started off as you know coming through it maybe through another interest and then it has become the principal interest in my life and I've tried to apply you know I think all the different skills and abilities talents that that I may have and, and try to contribute to the wine to that passion in those different outlets and wine is so unique in that way where you have so many different applications so many different disciplines that all converge and give you an opportunity to express yourself or, or learn something and I think that for me has been infinitely fascinating. Let's back up and talk about life before wine a little bit tell us about where you were born and raised and sort of life before that trip to Italy. Yeah life before that so I was born and raised in Florida I was born in Dunedin Florida grew up primarily in Orlando lived a little bit of time in North Carolina when I was young um, my mom was a nurse, like did a lot of work with horses. So like did some training, did some breeding. My dad was in finance, uh, worked from home mostly my whole life. And so I kind of grew up in rural Florida near where orange groves, I probably had to drive through seven or eight miles of orange groves to get to the nearest gas station where I grew up, spent a lot of time, you know, playing as a kid in lakes and rivers and, and things like that. And, um, so that's kind of growing up and spending a lot of time outdoors, you know, riding my bike, exploring in the forest, things like that. And then I went to, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school in Florida. Graduated early, graduated high school when I was, I was either 16 or 17, I kind of forget now, but it was kind of in between sophomore and junior year. I didn't enjoy high school, it wasn't for me. I never felt like at home there. And the school that I was going to had a program where you could early graduate and then go to the local community college and start taking college classes. And so I, I started doing that like in ninth grade, like I kind of already knew that I wanted to not be in high school for four years and do that. So anyway, I started going to college when I was maybe 16, 17, and then decided to triple major, which was a horrible choice in, in retrospect. But I did um, photojournalism, history and religious studies. And yeah, I went off to college in Kentucky, went to Western Kentucky University, because they had, at the time, like the one of the nation's best photojournalism programs. And I'd really gotten into photography, probably my last year of what should have been like my high school year. So maybe when I was 17, 18, got into photography, got into storytelling. I really wanted to explore that. And I specifically, I think I always grew up with a little bit of like a social, activist kind of bend to me like I remember distinctly remember as a kid like even little things like I didn't want to say the national anthem as a kid like that didn't feel it felt like I was being indoctrinated or something like that you know I was this kind of kid like I always I think was a little bit of a I would question things I always had a lot of questions I never really believed like necessarily what I was told off the jump if it didn't feel right and so that felt kind of the perfect application to be a journalist right like question things and and kind of try to follow up and get to the truth. And so I explored that in college, went to Kentucky, did photojournalism, started doing stories on like mountaintop coal mining in Eastern Kentucky and opioid crisis and teen pregnancies and 
access to health issues, like, you know, things like that. And then the history and religious studies majors were more for me to, I don't know, maybe explore other things I was interested in that weren't as artistic or technical or frankly require as much time. Like those photojournalism projects would be really time consuming. It was nice sometimes to just go to class and have a fill in the blank test to take rather than like, you know, presenting photographs for your classmates to critique and tear you apart and, and all that stuff. So um, yeah, it was a big part of my journey before wine. After college, I ended up working professionally as a photojournalist for several years and did projects mainly in East Africa. Did some work in Uganda, Kenya, Sudan, a handful of trips, um, commissions working for NGOs, nonprofits, doing storytelling about, you know, I did a couple projects on formerly abducted child soldiers in Uganda that was life-changing, really powerful. Did a, quite a few trips there, maybe five. I think I did five separate trips to Uganda. Worked with Doctors Without Borders in Sudan. Um, had some really heartbreaking experiences. And then on my last such trip, I got sick. I got a parasite. I went cliff diving in the Nile River with a group of boys that wanted to take the Mazungu to go swimming. And so I did that. And like two months later, I'd lost like 40 pounds. Um, and I got to a place where I couldn't take care of myself, so I had to move back to Florida, move back into my parents. My mom kind of had to help nurse me back to health because I was down to like 135 pounds or something like that and couldn't hold a glass of water. I was so weak and doctors at first couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. Eventually, like they, you know, diagnosed it as a parasite, all that was fine. And it took me maybe, I don't know, six months or something like that to get my body back to being fully functioning and I could go and work and then there was a little bit of an issue with the company that I was working at where the CFO embezzled every bit of money and then like dropped off the map and so I had just come back from a trip I was really sick and like they didn't pay me I, I never got my last paycheck from that job and that was a little bit of an impetus I think to at least think about making a career change and I had already been feeling like Maybe I didn't have the right heart to do that kind of work. Like it always took a really heavy emotional toll on me. I always like took a really long time to rebound from certain trips because the like the work I was doing was so intense and the stories that I was trying to tell were so heart wrenching. Um, and then I would spend time with like older journalists that had been doing the kind of work that I had for 10 or 15 years already. And I didn't love who those people had become or at least the way they spoke and talked about the work and how callous they seemed to be. And I don't know, I took all of that and I was like, I, need a, I might need a career change. Like as much as I love being a journalist, as much as I love telling these stories, as much as I love traveling and being able to like, you know, do these things and be a part of causes that I do deeply care about, I just might not have the disposition as a person to be able to do that over and over and over and keep my humanity and, you know, be able to like function. Mm -hmm. And I think even creatively, I was starting to not do as good of work because mm -hmm. I was getting like, I don't know, like stiff about things. I wasn't feeling that creative element wasn't flowing as well as it used to be able to. I think maybe some of the stories were starting to like give me a little bit of PTSD in, in my own way. And I wanted to change. So getting sick enabled me to do that. And then I just kind of got a job at the Apple store because I needed work and um, ended up working for Apple for like a year and a half and then got offered a job as like a junior software engineer company offered to like send me to engineering, software engineering school and do all these things. And so I did that for probably the next maybe six or seven years. And that's the job that really allowed me to like have time off to go travel, do 
wine tastings, go visit producers, um, you know, have time off during harvest. Like a lot of the harvest that I was working with Chris at Twill, which we'll, we'll get into, you know, how I met him and how I started getting into production. But a lot of that work I was doing while I was, you know, trying to hold down a full-time job as a software engineer. And I was just dying to get away from that job and, and, and work in wine. And so just in 2020 was when I left and, and have been working in the wine trade full-time um, since then. Yeah, that was probably pretty roundabout, but I guess that's how. You gotta, you gotta fill in all the gaps there. Uh, so at what point in there did you come to Oregon? Yeah, so I moved to Oregon in 2015. Um, and that was a situation where I was living in Long Beach, California at the time. The company I was working for was based in Fashion District, downtown Los Angeles. So I had this like gnarly commute. I was in the city, smog, you know, it was like, I wanted to maybe be able to buy a house one day and that was not gonna happen in Los Angeles County or in Orange County for that matter. And, and then I came up to Oregon one time and I think within 15 minutes of getting off the plane, I just was like, I, I like this place, the trees, it's beautiful. I like the city. I went out to eat a couple of times, was blown away by how good the food scene was in Portland. And okay, and then so I, I made the move very quickly after that. It just so happened that the company I was working for was a staffing agency. They had an office on 9th and Cooch in, in the Pearl District in Portland. And it was very easy for me to just stay at my job, transfer to a different office. So within like a couple of months, I had you know, made the decision. I was, I was already like flying up here to try to find an apartment. and told my job that I was gonna, you know, transfer to the Portland office and it, it just kind of happened. And so, so that predated wine. Like I was already in Oregon before I discovered that I was interested in wine and wanted to, you know, be a part of the wine community in a greater context. And it was really serendipitous now looking back that I had been here because if I had been in California where access to the wine region, like getting to Santa Barbara or getting maybe down to Temecula where it would have been much more difficult for me to explore that versus being here. So you mentioned sort of coming home after your kind of wine epiphany and, real, and then sort of realizing the Oregon, uh, the, how much wine was here in Oregon and, and starting to explore it. So tell us about that exploration and about how you learned about wine and, and what, what you enjoyed about the learning process of wine. Yeah, great, I love that question. So I think for me at first it was like just very personal. I wanted to know what I liked. Like I knew that I liked wine. Um, and so I think my original explorations were, okay, I'm gonna go down to the valley and I'm gonna pick producers that maybe I'd read about. Um, gosh, I think maybe early on, like I was reading like The Prince of Pinot, had a blog, I was reading, um, you know, like other writers, journalists, maybe that had talked about Oregon, which there aren't a ton of them. So it was a little bit difficult to find. So when I found someone like The Prince of Pinot that would have write-ups on producers and have tasting notes from back vintages, I was like, wow, this is really good content that may help me as I'm trying to understand my own palette and what style I like, right? So I figured out, okay, I like Pinot Noir. I like lighter color. I like more aromatic, ethereal Pinot Noir, right? So now I'm gonna look for producers that maybe are more in that style. Um, so I think there was probably maybe a year where it was just like tasting everything I could. Like, and then finding a good wine shop, huge part of my journey. Find a good retail shop where you can go to someone or a couple people on the staff that will get to know you, your palate, and help guide you on your journey. And so I did that. I went to several different wine shops in Portland. Like I met Saul at um, Vinopolis and he was huge for, you know, I could go in, pick his brain. He would suggest some wines and kind of keep me going on my journey. And then, you know, Marcus and Andy at Avalon, I bought a lot of Oregon wines from them when I was very early on in, in my wine drinking life. 
and again had great rapport with them they'd always have a good suggestion or try this bottle or this was really great or they'd have something open that they had been tasting that they were willing to share and that was really helpful on the journey as well and um, I think I just kept doing that until I had a, maybe a better grasp on what I liked and I was reading a ton like I want to know the language of wine I want to know what structure means like I remember being confused by that term structure when I first started getting into wine and then for maybe a while I thought the structure was only how tannic a wine was and didn't realize that it was built on you know a larger framework of components and so anyway yeah I just spent a lot of a lot of time in the car driving down in the valley to taste and I remember there's a handful of places I went early on that really were like influential to me the wines of Evesham Wood blew my mind very early on and ended up being very influential in me ending up in production. Um, Arterbury Marsh, I remember going to the Red Barn for the first time and feeling like a light, another light bulb going on. Like, okay, now that I'm on this journey, I know I like wine, I know I like red wine, I know I like Pinot Noir. This is the kind of Pinot Noir that I love. And let me find out more about that. How is that made? Why does it taste this way? Why is the color lighter than these other colors? Like, what does the Dundee Hills mean? What does terroir mean? And so those journeys all take, you know, time, but they take different people different amounts of time based on, A, how much time you have available, how much time you want to dedicate to it. And for me, it was like a wildfire thing. Like, it was seven days a week. I was either reading something, listening to a podcast. The, um, the All Drink to That podcast that Levy Dalton does, it has been incredibly influential and educational for me in my wine journey. I've probably listened to every episode, some of them probably a dozen times because I love the, the details. I love the stories. I love all the intersections. And so if I was, you know, thinking about in retrospect, all the important things on the wine journey, it's like find a good retail shop with someone that can guide you, right? Find good content that you can read to keep you busy. Find a podcast that you can listen to while you're driving. And now there's a handful of really great ones, but you know, seven years ago, there was much less content in that particular, you know, avenue. Um, and I, I wanted to consume all of it. And I think that kind of put me on the path to where I'm at now. You know, you kind of bite things off as they come and figuring out that you like this and then maybe you want to even work in that industry, but then in what capacity? Do you want to work in retail? Do you want to work in distribution? Do you want to work in importing? Do you want to work in restaurants? Do you want to work in production? Do you want to do sales? Like there's obviously a lot of different roles that you can play and I decided to play as many of them as I could. <laughs> so tell me about that. Tell me about the, the, the kind of the journey for you from interested consumer educate, educating uh, and then to the point of like, I want to be in this industry. So what point did that kind of click for you that you wanted to be part of it? What was your first step in that, in that role? Yeah, I, I don't know exactly when the moment may have hit me that I wanted to work in wine. I had just started spending all my time doing wine-related things for a while. Not all my time, right? I would still go on backpacking trips. Like, I wasn't completely abandoning, you know, who I was as a person or anything like that before that. But there was this new thing in my life, and I, it was starting to consume so much of my time that I felt like maybe there was a desire, a capacity to do it as a profession. I didn't know what that meant yet. And I was also a little bit unhappy with my job at the time. Like, I had... I had really frankly like, automated a lot of components of my job where I, I didn't need to be at my desk 40 hours a week anymore. Um, and I started maybe even to a fault, like leaving my desk to go 
to a retail shop to buy a bottle of wine or like go work harvest on a day that I didn't have a vacation day off or like, you know, I was doing things that weren't the most respectful to my company, we'll say. Mm -hmm. And I think that may have been, maybe that was the light going on moment where I was like, okay, well, if I'm running away from my job to go do these other things, maybe that means those are things I should try to explore professionally. And, um, and then, yeah, like in 2020, I got laid off and that made it easy for me then. Okay. The, you know, the rug's been taken out from under you. It's a sink or swim moment. And frankly, at that time I was th sitting down thinking about what skills do I have to offer? I need work. I'm on unemployment now. And I started like thinking, okay, I'd already been doing a little bit of like photography projects for wine. I'd made wine a couple times, like with Chris here at, at with Twill Cellars. And I was like, I'm just going to go for it and try to do as much as I can. So I like, started working at the wine shop, um, started doing more different times of the year at Twill and f maybe trying to figure out what role would, would be best for me. The transition definitely happened as a combination of yeah, not being happy, being a software engineer, being at a desk. I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted something physical. I wanted to like, you know, not need a gym membership. I wanted my job to kind of take care of some of that, if that makes sense. So, you know, I worked Harvest a couple of times and was like, wow, this is very physical. The camaraderie is amazing. Like the sense of community that you build just being in a winery six or seven days a week, you know, 100 hours a week, whatever it is with, with another person, other people build something that's like really cool and fun and I got addicted to that and wanted to do it over and over and you know it's not going to be possible to do that with my job and it was time to make a change. So let's back up and talk about meeting Chris and, and, and your first harvest experience. Um, how did you meet him and, and tell us about that first harvest experience. What, what were you expecting and what did you get? Yeah that's a great question. So yeah just to rewind a little bit so um, Chris Dixon of Twill Sellers has been my mentor for the last five years. I've learned so much of what I know about making wine, selling wine, tasting wine from, you know, things that, that him and I have done together. I've learned from him. He's been absolutely instrumental in my journey. I would not be anywhere near where I am today without him. And how I met him was I was at Avalon Wine, buying wine from Marcus and Andy. And maybe a week earlier, I had bought a bottle of Evesham Wood. I think it was uh, Mahonia Vineyard. I don't remember the vintage. And I went back to you know, the wine shop. And I was like, Marcus, Andy, like this wine is amazing. I need to know more about this. Um, a, do you have more of it? And B, like, what can you tell me about how it was made, the producer? Like, this has really blown my hair back. And I remember he goes, oh, you know, you should ask the guy behind you. And, and I turn around and look and there's Chris Dixon and he's got like a hand truck and he's delivering, he's dropping off wine for Twill. And, you know, Chris had worked harvest, um, I don't know how many harvests, maybe it was just one, but he had worked at Evesham Wood and knew the program, knew like how the winemaking was done and Marcus and Andy knew that. And Chris was so gracious. He's like, oh yeah, I'd love to tell you, you know, all about how, you know, things are done there. And I'm making wine at Twill Cellars now. Like, here's my card. Call me, send me an email. I could love to have you at the cellar. You can come taste some wines in barrel and, and like, we'll go from there. And I was like, wow, that's the first time anyone's ever like invited me to a cellar. You know, this is so cool. And, um, you know, I probably like, emailed him a handful of times and then I remembered it would always he'd be like yeah let's let's find some time to get you in the cellar but it, it didn't happen and then I remember they also had a tasting room in Westland at the time I you know didn't know that or hadn't been there and I went to the tasting room one day and met like Molly and Daryl and just I wanted to just taste the wines because so like all right I know I like these Evesham wood wines that Chris had been involved with like maybe the Twill wines have some similar style and so I went and tasted them, was totally blown away. And I was like, all right, I want to like, I'm going to bother this guy because I want to know more. 
And then, so I go through like Molly and Daryl, that angle, and then I think they talked to Chris and they were like, you need to talk to this guy, like get him in the cellar, like he's really interested. And then eventually it happened. And I remember the first harvest, I didn't actually work harvest with them. I offered to photograph it, right? So when I wanted to start getting into the wine business and more leave maybe being a, just a consumer behind and and be more of a participant, I was like, what skills do I have, right? Like I'm, I'm a trained photographer. I know how to do that really well. Um, I'd, I'd like built websites for people in college to pay my rent and stuff like that. So I had a little bit of web design skills. And I was like, all right, I've also got some kind of software engineering data skills, but I don't really know what to do with that yet. So I was like, let me try photographing harvest for people. That'd be a good way to meet people and then try to get a harvest job for next year. And so that's exactly what I did. So I'd like go around, like I think I did harvest photography for like Domain Roy, a couple other places. And then Twill, I was just like, let me show up at the winery with my camera and just watch. And so that's all I did for that first harvest. Um, went to the pick. Watch the pickers, you know, pick the vineyard, watch the grapes get delivered to the winery. It was a part of the whole process. You know, I'd show up during fermentation and watch Chris do all the management of that. And then the next year was when I was like, I want to come and work harvest with you. I want to know about production. And I never looked back, you know. That second year I enrolled in school down at Chemeketa, the viticulture and enology program. Did it, I don't even know if I did two semesters there. I might have only done one. But it became pretty obvious to me that I wanted a mentor and not a professor. I wanted to be more hands-on and maybe not do as much academic school learning. Because mm -hmm. I was really good at doing that on my own. Like I could take textbooks, I could go home, read them. You know, I didn't feel that that was needed as much. And so I basically took all that time and just invested it in being here at this winery with Chris, learning everything I could from him. And here we are, you know, five or six years later and I'm broken off and started making wine, you know, for my own project in addition to, you know, continuing to help Chris in the capacity that I can. This year it was much less than it has been in the last few years, but again, hugely instrumental, amazing mentor to me, great friend, awesome person. Can't thank him enough for being such an incredible teacher. So you had a kind of an interesting, an interesting entry. Most, most people we've spoken with, of course, their first harvest experience was doing harvest for the first time and they didn't have any idea to expect. You had photographed a harvest, had been around. So what was it like doing the work versus what you, versus kind of uh, observing and, and, do and documenting? I don't necessarily remember what my expectations were before going into it. Like I don't remember having an epiphany of like, wow, this is stickier than I thought it was going to be. Or like it's, this is, I knew it was going to be a labor intense, heavy kind of job. Like I did envision that there was going to be forklifts and that barrels weren't light and that moving fruit around was going to be challenging. What I think maybe, and I think that physical nature of it is part of what attracted me to it. Like I said earlier, I was looking for a, a line of work that would have a physical element to it that would, you know, allow me to at least get out of going to the gym sometimes of the year. And that first harvest was like, yeah, we'd have 16 hour days, really heavy, lifting a lot of material. This winery is gravity fed on three floors. And so if you need to go from the bottom floor up to the top floor multiple times, you're bringing kegs up and down to clean them for topping wine. Like it's very physically intense. I loved that. I fed off of that. And I think that's another element to it that made me want to continue to be involved in production and take that further was I, I need that. I want that as a part of my life, right? Like even when I'm doing recreation, like I'm going to go 
hike 40, 50, 60 miles, climb something, gain, you know, 9,000 feet of elevation in a few days. Like, I like that. The winery gives me a lot of those same sensory feelings, like exhaustion, a little bit of physical pain that I like. And it keeps me coming back and wanting to do it. So yeah, I think that first harvest was, maybe it took the edge off because I photographed it and watched it all happen once before actually participating in it. So I did have a pretty good gauge on what I was walking into. But still, after doing it, it's like, you know, it's like the, the sandwich. You, you clean something, you use it, you clean it. I think maybe that was the thing where it's like, there is, I mean, I knew winemaking needed to be a really clean process, but when you read about it, it's sort of very mystical. It's almost like, who knows what goes on behind the winery doors and this magic thing, you know, comes out. Like, now I've demystified the magic and I know that a lot of what it is is just cleaning tanks. So, I like that. <laughs> I'm curious if that demystification process changed your enjoyment of wine. Did you find yourself enjoying wine more once you knew how it was made and had made it, or, or less because you, it was less magical? Oh, I think more. And I don't think it's less magical. I think the magic is just in different places. Just on a philosophical level, if something is completely, if I can't understand it at all, I might not be interested in it. Maybe that thing is not for me. Like, I just don't get it, right? Like. So I think the demystification and watching wine get made and then, and then being able to taste it, which takes years, right? Like if you wanna make a wine, age it, give it a year in bottle and then taste it, now you're, you're in a three year investment. Unless maybe it was longer elevage, now maybe it's four years. That demystification I think made me love the process of making it even more because what I realized is that it's the minutia of the details where the magic is and not necessarily in like the wide zoomed out stuff. Like any winemaker could, you could ruin the best fruit, but you, you also can't necessarily make great wine from bad fruit. And I think that dichotomy, realizing the role of the winemaker and the role of the fruit, which frankly is changing all the time. I reevaluate my own scales of what the contribution is of those two things, you know, grower, site, winemaker. If those are your three kind of high level zoomed out inputs, you know, what relationship do those three things play? with each other, I think for me, it's always changing. Um, but the demystification in general, I think made me fall in love with it more because I realized that the level of detail and where and the choices and where you make them and how you make them and then how that impacts things later on down the line sat in that perfect space where I understood it enough to like it, but didn't understand it enough at all to be bored by it, if that makes sense. It's like, I got a little taste of the knowledge and I wanted to know more, but you'll never be able to get to the end of that rainbow. So you mentioned 2020, obviously diving in full, a more full-time way and getting into the retail side as well. Um, tell me about spending more time with the wine, seeing it outside of harvest and, and, the, and the kind of the quieter times. Mm -hmm. um, how, did, how did you start to understand sort of influence of winemaker on finished product as you now had this ideal, like I like this Pinot Noir, I like it this style. How did you start to understand that kind of the role the winemaker plays in that and how does that lead towards sort of your own personal winemaking style? I think the first thing I needed to do was establish like where the parameters were. Like what is a really, what is a light wine and what's like a heavy wine? And then what's maybe, the word balance I think is overused because everyone's perception of balance is different. There's no such thing as an objectively balanced wine. Um, so I think figuring out, okay, these are the parameters, and now I know what I like. Now I wanna know how, like, what do you have to do here in the winery to make that? 
and it's a it's obviously like it's a bunch of different things like the fruit that you're working with you know how you manage it like are you doing punch downs or pump overs how often are you doing it how much are you macerating the fruit are you crushing it are you using whole clusters so many different winemaking elements go into it that yeah once i figured out what i like working with chris who makes wine in a style that i absolutely loved and loved the finished wines watching them come out yeah huge light going on moment like i see what we're doing in the winery every day i see how lightly we're extracting the fruit i see how little we work it i see how hands off in so many ways it is but intentionally hands off not maybe lazy winemaking or like oh i just can't make it into the winery today so i'm not going to do it any cap management or whatever it is and then seeing that product go to bottle that is a level of demystification but i think that only goes so far like like i was saying earlier there's still so much mystery in why that one ended up that way what if we had done this differently like this year after harvest you know i was i made this very detailed sort of charts and graphs to manage all my ferments and i was looking at all my movements i was like okay on this ferment you know i did a i did a 10 minute pump over here and a 15 minute the next day and then a punch down and you know i'm just like recapping like what i did and then thinking about all the years past like all the different decisions that you know chris and i made on all these different ferments and why we did it and that to me is where the magic still is it's like this little window of two to three weeks where the wine is going to become what it is and every day you get an opportunity maybe two, depending on how you manage things you know to like guide the style of that wine and I think yeah watching it change over a few years tasting things in bottle figuring out how do I want to approach it and then for me like I wasn't gonna I didn't want to make my own wine until I had a very defined style that I was going to try to achieve. I wanted it to be more than like, oh, well, I just like wines that are like this, and so that's what I want to make. Like, I wanted to have a really clear vision, and I also wanted it to be different than what the wines were making with Chris at Twill. Like, it, it felt an imperative to me that I added a different part of the conversation rather than just being another label that was going to make wine in the exact same way as someone else. I wanted to have a unique voice, a new something to contribute to the conversation. And then I, I felt after enough times of watching, okay, production, aging, bottling, now taste it, what do we have after doing that a few times, not a lot. I mean, a young guy, haven't made wine that many vintages and, you know, I've really only tasted now in bottle, what do we have, like only four different ones that I've worked on. So that's not a huge history, but I felt I had enough to, to at least begin a conversation with, with some of my own wines. So we'll come back in a second to starting your own label. Um, but before that, I'm curious, obviously you, we talked earlier about your the, sort of the, 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 the photography and digital realm uh, that you've played in the industry. So obviously you have a kind of unique perspective on other wineries, other parts of the industry. Um, you've, you've played a role in a lot of wineries uh, in, around the area. So I'm curious about uh, the role that you see sort of the photography, digital media, website creation playing in Oregon wine and how you, felt, you feel like you've contributed in that way. Yeah, I love that question. I think what I love about photography website and how that relates to Oregon is all based on storytelling. And what you have in a lot of new world wineries are you have, you don't have huge history, right? We're all not the Shav family in the Rhone who's owned vines since, you know, the 1400s. Like that's not, that's not anyone's story in the United States. Um, and it's certainly much less of a story when you get into Oregon where I think the overwhelming majority of producers are first generation. And 
So I think that storytelling component is huge, and that's where I wanted to try to contribute to the conversation because the style of photography that I was doing and am doing, in my opinion, is very different than what the other photographers that were working in the Valley and still are, were doing. I approached it from a very photojournalism angle. Nothing staged, nothing lit, nothing set. Like when I am working with a client talking about photography, A, a lot of them come to me because they like the style of photographs that are, you know, I've produced and are on my website portfolio. And so that helps to start the conversation. But it will typically be a lot of me being like, my style is I just want to follow you around while you're doing real things. Like I don't want you to go to the winery and just top barrels because I'm going to photograph it. I want you to let me know on a day when you're actually going to be doing this work and I just want to follow you. Fly on the wall, I'll make it, I'll tell the story, I'll try to make it beautiful, you know, keep those things in mind. Obviously you want photographs to, to be pretty and, and also they need to tell a story. And to me, that's like the strength of Oregon wine is I do think that everybody, regardless of whether or not you come from a historical winemaking family or you have some incredible story, like everyone has a way that they got here, a story to tell and something to contribute to the conversation. And I think it's our goal as content creators, website developers, photographers to, to, to do that as best we can for our clients, for the wineries. How do we tell their story in a way that feels authentic to them and is compelling and yeah, sure, a part of the end goal is to, is to sell some wine, mm -hmm. but I mean, you've interviewed so many people in Oregon, like so many people do this because they're passionate about it. And even if they couldn't sell the wine, like they would keep making it as long as they financially could mm -hmm. because they love it so much. And I like working with people that way and want to help them tell their stories. Are there f photographs you've taken or people you, places you've worked with, websites you put together that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Right now I'm actually working on Evesham Woods, which is in a lot of ways very full circle because Evesham Wood was, I, it's like th in three ways for me. Like the best bottle of Oregon wine I've ever had was a 2002 Evesham Wood Seven Springs that Russ Rainey made. It was the wine that made me want to get into winemaking and that's how I met Chris. And now this other element where like, you know, my, my, my partner Brian is making their website and I'm doing all the photography for the website. You know, I'm working with Aaron and Jordan and like, so right now that project is like ongoing and I'm doing shoots with them and helping them tell their story. And that feels really exciting in the moment. Um, gosh, in years past, what do I did one for Chris Mazapink of the white, white walnut. And I really enjoyed that shoot. There was a day he had a, a desire to take an amphora and put it in the vineyard and then pick the fruit and then just literally load like the buckets, the five gallon buckets into the amphora. But he didn't know when he was going to do it. And I was like, please just call me. Even if it's seven o'clock in the morning, like six o'clock in the morning, whatever it is, I want to shoot that for you. I think that'll be amazing. And he did. And I showed up and it was like, the light was perfect. The amphora is beautiful. It was very visual. And then there was a handful of other things that, you know, just kind of happened during the creation of the images for his website and I think it came together really great. So that's one I would say stands out to me as a, one I'm really proud of and was fun to work on. And I really loved the sort of storytelling imagery that, that are on, that came out of those shoots. And obviously you mentioned working on the retail side as well uh, during, during all this. Tell me about how that's gone for you and what that sort of has added to your sort of wine portfolio. Yeah, uh, so I work at ENR Wine Shop, um, just one day a week right now, sometimes it's two or three in times of the year where I have more time. And I absolutely love working in retail. I love staying connected to 
customers, consumers, wine people, and what they're drinking, buying, asking, talking about. I think it's a really helpful way as a wine person, as a producer, to stay really connected with what's going on. And when you don't have wine to actively sell, like, I mean, I've helped Twill sell the wines for the last few years, but I don't have any wine of my own in bottle right now. So the only way for me to stay connected to that side frankly, is like to work there, because I'm not, I'm not buying wines really anymore now that I've got, you know, barrels to buy and fermentation tanks to buy and bottles to pay for and corks and crush fees and fruit bills and all that stuff. Um, so staying in retail is a really good way for me to, yeah, like I said, stay connected to the consumer, figure out what people are interested in, what they're drinking, what they like, what they don't like. And not necessarily for that to influence like the wines that I'm making, but I think it just helps me keep my finger on the pulse of an element of the wine business. Um, and I just like working with people. I like talking to people because I have a really strong interest in French wine. And so this is an outlet for that. Like I don't get to make French wine. I don't get to work with French wine in, in Oregon in that context, but being involved in retail, you know, I get to taste horizontals and verticals of really great stuff, which is good for the wine projects because it helps to have reference points and, and keep your palate sharp and just taste things, frankly, that aren't Oregon Pinot. Um, you know, working at the shop, we'll have distributors come in and taste such a wide variety of wines and that helps keep my palate sharp, gives me ideas. Working at the shop has also given me the opportunity to travel and do some sourcing work in France and Italy. And I've visited, I don't know, probably 150 producers in France and Italy and been to their cellars and tasted. And that has been monumental. I would say in determining like the style of wine that I want to make, inspiration, like going to the old world, I think has been really a big part of my journey and a big part of my story. Wineries I've interacted with there, people that I've learned from, advice I've been given, um, encouragement even from like people that you might regard as heroes. I mean, all those things are wind in your sails. And, um, and how I got to ENR is actually a really interesting story too. It kind of started, I was really into Beaujolais for quite a while. I mean, I still am not as much as I was maybe five or six years ago, but ENR had this like amazing Beaujolais selection and I would go in there and talk to Ed and Laura and Richard at the time and get like selections and they were they were becoming that part of the journey for me like I'd pick up a bottle and they would say well you should try this and they were being stewards on that journey and so I started really just going to ENR at that point like I, I kind of stopped going to some of the other wine shops that I'd been supporting because I felt I just felt a really good connection with with them and then one day they were like I, Alex, I think you work like in graphic design or something like that. Like we need business cards made. Would you want to make business cards for us? And I was like, absolutely. I would love to do that for you. So we did this like business card project. And then um, I think during that project, I was like, you know, you guys don't have a website. Like, would you be interested in having one? And I remember Ed and Laura at the time were like, yes, we've actually been trying to and talking about doing that for probably the better part of 10 years. And we've had a couple false starts with it, but we would love to talk to you about doing a website. And then, yeah, maybe like a month later, they got really serious about it. And then I started coming into the shop like every week to do these meetings or we were building the website together and throwing all these ideas around. And then one day they were just like, you know, Richard had left, who was one of the, you know, three people that were working there at the time. And it created some opportunity for employment there. And, you know, they reached out and they were like, we would love to have you come work with us. We don't need you to be here full time. What we're going to kind of do is take 
Richard's full-time role and, and maybe hire two or three part-timers and, and try to get different voices in the shop. And I was so happy and elated that, that they wanted to work with me. And so that was in 2020 that I started doing that. And it's, again, huge part of my journey. I don't think I'd be in the same place without that influence. So you mentioned earlier that you didn't want to start producing your own wine until you had something to say, basically, until you had your own unique voice. So you have all these influences now. You have Chris, you have, you have the wines you've had in Oregon, Evesham Wood, and other wines you've had in Oregon. Now you have your kind of old world connections that you're making. So tell me about synthesizing all of that into the voice you wanted to say and what made you t decide the time was right? Yeah, well, it's a great question. Going to France a handful of times and being able to I mean, I got really lucky my first time to France. Like my favorite wine producing family is the Lafarge family in Volnay. And I got an opportunity on my very first trip to France to go and meet and taste with Frédéric Lafarge. And it was mind blowing and so inspirational. A, just to be in the place, taste these wines that I had, have been the biggest light bulb on this is what I want to make. Yeah, it's not in Oregon, but that influence, like that component, that inspiration, I think was really, really big for me. And in terms of building style, I think I've probably borrowed maybe more philosophical ideas from the old world than things I've learned here. And so when I'm applying those principles, maybe in the cellar, I mean, another thing we could talk about, it would be an interesting topic of conversation for me in general is like, especially if you're a small producer on a tight budget, there's like, there's what you want to do and then there's what you can afford to do. And those are off, those are almost always very different things. Um, but what I love about the old world is so many of those wineries are not using modern, expensive, fancy equipment. They're doing things in a way that they've just figured out on the margins, like how to create this product with relatively simple means. And I've been totally inspired by that because I don't have financial backing. I don't have a huge budget. I can't buy a press. I can't buy frankly, even like fermentation tanks. And so I'm looking for inspiration and ideas, maybe in some of these old world cellars where people are working with really small spaces, really small budgets, but trying to make something incredible and, and are succeeding at that in an, at an amazing rate. Um, so I think that was huge on influencing my style. And in terms of being ready, I think some of it was like, I needed to know in, in my guts that I'd fermented enough things that I could do one or two or three myself and like have the confidence that I can take them through without, I didn't want to rely on Chris or, or Tyson Crowley. I didn't want to rely on someone else in the building so much where it didn't even feel like it was my own thing. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have the knowledge and I wanted to have at least some experience where I could problem solve, troubleshoot, know my way around the building. No, even like little things like how does the relationship with the grower work? How does the relationship with the building manager work? I wanted to make sure I had a, a lot of those things ironed out before I invested, frankly, with my life savings into making, you know, one vintage of wine. And, and that's what I knew I was going to have to do. And the other thing was I had to take time to save money. I needed, I needed a little bit of savings to make this happen, to pay for fruit bills, to pay for crush bills, to buy some French oak, you know, things like that. So some of it was financial. Some of it was technical. I needed to make sure I had the ability. And then the third one was inspiration. I needed to make sure that I knew what I wanted to make and I wanted it to be distinct. Like I said earlier, I wanted to have a, something to contribute to the conversation rather than being like, 
Oh, if you like the twill lines, you're gonna love mine because they're made exactly the same way and they're made in the same cellar, right? Like to me, that didn't feel like a good goal. Like that doesn't inspire me. Um, I absolutely love those wines and I, I hope that I love the wines that I'm making now, but I wanted them to be distinctly different and I wanted to know like what that meant. Um, and then the third one is, is also like, I needed the right year, I think. So I tried to start last year. And my original goal was actually to be 100% Chardonnay producer, or maybe not Chardonnay, but white wines. Like if I could find some Albarino, gosh, if I could find some Aligote, I would have been doing backflips. But we had frost in 22, and you know, a lot of growers that I've been reaching out to were like, I probably am not gonna have enough fruit to satisfy my own contracts, or people are all on acreage. Some vineyards are all on acreage contracts, so they never have extra. And so it was a situation where I wasn't able to make wine last year. That's not really true. I was offered like Pinot Noir maybe two weeks before harvest, but again, that didn't feel right to me because I wanted to be really heavy on sampling. I wanted to be in the vineyard to, to see what was going on with the fruit rather than like, oh sure, send me some fruit and I'll, you know, just make it. Like that's where I, when I'm, that didn't feel authentic or didn't feel like how I wanted to start this conversation. This year turned out to be a really great year to start because it was high yields, there was a lot of extra fruit, um, Pinot Noir was pretty abundant in the valley, and so it was a good opportunity for me to be able to, frankly, interview growers in a sense, where I could find out what parameters are you working with, what is your philosophy, and does that align with mine? And I don't have really, I don't think, like, I'm not dogmatic about too many things. The only things I really feel strongly about are um, dry farmed vineyards and working with organics or sustainability, maybe even biodynamics. Those things are important to me. And so there's a handful of vineyards that I had known about over the years that I liked that I reached out to. Okay, they're not dry farming, they're irrigating, so I'm not gonna work with that vineyard, right? Even though I'm not gonna be critical, like I love wines that I've had from that that have been made by other people. But when I'm setting up my brand, that's a principle that I really want to acknowledge and, and maintain. And, and I wanna be a part of the Deep Roots Coalition when I have wine in bottle. And, you know, it's something that I've been a part of with Twill. And, you know, Tyson is the president of the Deep Roots Coalition and, and he's a friend and works here at the winery with us. And I wanted to just join in on that conversation as well because I do really believe in, in dry farming and, and think that it makes a better wine. And um, so anyway, that was a parameter. Organics was a parameter. And then if I could find older vines and or own rooted vines, I was really interested in that. And I was able to find all of those things, frankly, because there was fruit available and growers were in a position where they needed to find buyers rather than in previous years I think there was maybe some of the opposite or at least early in the season when you get to the end like when you get to two or three weeks before harvest there's always fruit available but I hesitate to want to work with that because I didn't get to be a part of the conversation during the growing season as much and then that feels more to me like um just not as authentic I guess or not not what I want to do if someone else is Working that way, I've absolutely, I don't think it's wrong in any way, shape, or form. I don't mean to be pejorative to doing that, but when I set out to make wine for myself for the first time, I wanted to know months in advance, like, these are my rows, this is my fruit, like, and how can I, you know, be in the vineyard on a cold day, on a warm day, I wanna be sampling, I wanna be walking the rows with the farmer, talking about how he's managing the canopy or what's gonna happen when it rains next week and things like that. So tell me about the places you worked with this year and tell me about how, about how Harvest 23 went. Yeah, so currently I'm working with fruit from two different sites. Both are in the southern part of the Eola Amity Hills. So I'm working with Nuestro Sueño Vineyard, also known as Simonette. 
and I'm also working with Orchard House Vineyard, um, which is Joe Dobbs's vineyard, and he, he lives there at that property. And so, yeah, both are in the Eola bench, and both are, you know, a little bit higher elevation. Um, I love the clonal variety. The Nuestra Sueño is own rooted, planted in 2000, absolutely beautifully farmed by Tom Simonette. I love the way that he works, and he's very willing to be a collaborator. And so, you know, next year, if I want things to be pruned a little shorter, so the yields are lower, maybe we have to green harvest a little bit less, maybe I want there to be more leaf coverage, like he's open to having a discussion with me about that and farming my rows differently. And that felt wonderful to me to have the opportunity to be involved in a discussion with the grower and instead of just buying, you know, purchasing fruit. Um, and so, yeah, so both the sites I'm working with were actually planted in 2000. Um, Nuestra Sueño is own rooted. Uh, orchard House is on, you know, grafted root stock, but both of the fruit from both of those sites this year I thought was really brilliant. 23 in general, I think the challenge this year is finding balance. I think that sugars were a little ahead of flavors. Um, I think it was a year that really benefited you if you were at higher elevation or if you were east facing, maybe north facing and things were a little bit cooler because we did have sort of perfectly middle warm days in the 80s and ripeness was really moving pretty quick. We had a nice little three quarter inch of rain there in September, which I think was really helpful for, for helping the, the vines achieve a little bit of balance right at the end. Um, choosing the picking date was tough this year because the bricks were really flying as we got into the sort of middle part of September. Um, but I was really happy with, you know, the chemistry, the pick, how they taste. You know, we, we tasted a little bit right before we sat down here and I'm so far like thrilled with how the wines are just, you know, a month in barrel here, but I think they're going to be balanced for my palate. I think they're going to be beautiful. I think I'll be able to make a light wine, but that also has, you know, some backbone to it, some structure. And, you know, my, my goal as a first year producer is like, I want people to pull corks on these bottles. Like I didn't want to make something that was really structured. I didn't want to use a hundred percent whole cluster and, and do a lot of extraction and use a lot of new oak. I like plenty of wines that are made in that style, but those wines need to be in the cellar. And as a new producer, I want people to taste my wines on release. Like I'm going to make 375 odd cases of wine and I would love for all of them to be consumed in the next three years. And so some of the way that I made the wine this year was, was keeping that in mind. Like I did shorter macerations. I did less extraction, less punch downs, less pump overs because I wanted something that was going to be drinkable young really charming enjoyable young and i think this vintage also lends itself to that style of wine really well so I, I couldn't be happier if we had a year more like 21 or 22 don't get me wrong i would have been elated i thought both of those vintages were absolutely brilliant and i'm really excited to follow those wines for the next 20 30 years but i think that 23 the style of the wine the weather the the dryness like how the wines are tasting now i think it was actually perfect for what I'm trying to do right now, which is, like I said, get, get wines in the glass, have people drink them, experience them, taste them. And I wanted to make something that would be really charming on release. And I think this vintage lent itself to that. You spoke earlier about the, the challenge of being new and small and the, what you want to do versus what you can do. So tell me about making some of those decisions during your first harvest, um, trying to figure out the best thing you could do given the situation, given how fast things were, were happening there at the end. Um, how did you sort of weigh those decisions and how have you, how, how are the results so far? Yeah, it, 
This year felt like it was really fast and really intense and there was a lot of decisions to make very quickly. So, you know, one of the challenges of being a new producer is you don't have your space set up, right? Like I didn't have my barrel room all nice and in order and my fermentation tanks ready to go. Like a lot of that stuff was happening sort of during harvest. Like I didn't have enough wood, you know, when harvest started. I mean, most producers don't. Like you're waiting on your new barrels to come in and, you know, I'd been reaching out to friends of mine like hey do you have any extra used wood like I need you know this many barrels and so some of it was like racing and just trying to get the materials together and then spending a lot of time in the vineyards you know I was down in the vineyards almost every single day sampling tasting talking to the growers because I wanted to nail that and you know I'm also like sampling for the twill wines when I'm down like we work with Johan we work with Bracken Vineyard down in the Eel Amity Hills and both of my sites are very close to Bracken and so I would you know, just try to go to multiple sites and, and try to knock out some sampling, go to Johan, bring those back. And so I was in the vineyards a lot trying to make sure that that choice to me, I, mean, I think most years when you pick, it's probably the most important. Sing, if you're going to single out one decision, that's probably the most important one. And I felt like it was going to be tricky this year. Um, you know, I didn't want to wait too long. I feel like the wines were pretty quickly going to get top heavy. And then so, yeah, once the fruit comes in, now I'm like, I've got to work on my space. I didn't have any equipment. I owned no tanks, I owned no press, I owned no fermentation vessels, I owned none of that material. And so I'm working with, you know, Tom here at August Cellars, like, I need, I'm gonna have three red wine ferments, about one and a half tons each, so like, what am I gonna use for this? Then I need a couple settling tanks, you know, I need a thousand liter and a 300. I wanted to separate, this year I wanted to separate the press wine and the free run just to try to have more small lots, A, for blending, because when you're small, you have to find a way to create quality. And B, I thought it would be another way to help me learn the vineyards a little bit faster, would be to taste that, the, the press cut. So I made a lot of fractions at the press. And, you know, I had to rent a lot of equipment this year, right? renting tanks, renting fermentation vessels in order to make that happen. And, um, you know, finding barrels and then like, you know, I got to the end of like barreling everything down and I had no topping wine. And you know, that's kind of one of these things like you don't really know what the volumes are gonna be until you're barreling down. I, I did my best estimates with like a ruler and trying to figure out how many liters per inch were in my settling tanks. And you know, you get pretty close, but like, anyway, I had no topping wine, but I had three 200, or I had two 300 liter barrels. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna have to rack out of those into some 228 so that I can make about 150 liters of topping wine for myself. So that was a fun like, small producer has no extra wine and then I have to do a racking project like literally the day after I barrel down because I need I need topping wine and so you know small things like that I think are just kind of fun and, and maybe part of the challenge of being a small producer and and the next layer for me is going to be yeah blending and like I have these small lots like I've got 14 barrels right and how do I take those 14 barrels and make the best collection of wines that I can and that you know that's the goal for the for the spring and, and the summer etc next year start to taste those wines when they you know become a little bit more who they're going to be and, and try to figure out how to put them together mm -hmm. to take them to market that's my next question was going to be about that 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 role after after you've made the wines tell me about uh label selling marketing mm -hmm. uh, distribution what 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 comes next have you figured out what you want to call your wines have you figured out how you want to sell your wines yep i have some ideas more so on how to sell them than i do on the name the name is where i'm really stumped i'm going to be honest there's a lot of challenges with naming a wine project when you don't have a wine family when you don't have wine history when you don't have like i don't think my name sounds great on a wine label 
And then you have like the copyright issues, like so, so many names are taken, so many names are taken by other industries that have copyrights and they might, you know, that can create issues. And you know, what you don't want is to have a false start. Like you come up with a name, it gets cleared. And then two years later, when you've already started to build your brand, now you get a cease and desist letter from someone, you have to change your name, now you're starting over. So I think the naming thing for me is my single biggest challenge at the moment. I've had a couple names in the last five or six years that I've you know, worked on and have like reserved that I can use in a, if I don't find something that really feels right. Um, but I, I haven't settled on anything yet. In terms of how to, I mean, so even before how to sell the wine, like I think the next phase then is going to be what wines do I make? Right now I'm, I'm planning on making five wines. I wanna make a rosé of Pinot Noir. I wanna make like a Blanc de Noir white Pinot an Eola Amity Hills blend, and then a single vineyard designate from Orchard House, and then another one from Nuestro Sueño. So that'll be potentially five wines, which is some of the advice I was given. Actually, Jackson Holstein told me, he's like, when you're making wine for the first time, he's like, make as many SKUs as you can. You know, if you only have one wine, and you have, say, 375 cases of it, that's going to be harder for you to sell than if you have five wines in the same number of cases. And I was like, that sounds like really great advice. And Obviously, I was never planning on making only one wine, but I hadn't, until we had that conversation, really maybe put an emphasis on making as many different wines as I could. And then sort of where that gives you some opportunity is, now you've got a lot of blending choices. And so, you know, I'm maybe a blend half of this barrel that was in a new barrel, half of this in neutral is gonna make, you know, the vineyard designate, everything else will get blended into a, you know, an Eola Amity Hills. Like I'm gonna try to find I don't have anything predetermined. I don't know, I'm not making 75 cases of a single vineyard designate and 25 cases of this. Like I have no idea what these wines are gonna be. I don't wanna approach them with any preconceived notions. You know, maybe next summer going into the fall when it's about time to start thinking about bottling to create space for the wines for next year. You know, it'll be a lot of blending trials. I think at my dining room table at home trying to figure out how I can make the best wines possible to take to the market. And then like the other part of that strategy was making wine that was more approachable than maybe the wine I'll make in five years. I, I would like to make a different style of wine five years from now than I made this year. And so in terms of sales strategy, like I think part of the reason that I like working in so many of these different capacities in the wine trade, like I've worked in, you know, I've done sourcing trips, basically working with importers. I've worked in retail. I've worked on the creative side, doing website photography, data migrations. Like I move data for wineries that want to be on a different e-commerce platform and being in production. It, it just kind of gives you a lot of different relationships and maybe avenues to sell wine. Let's call it that. And so that's another reason why I've waited, you know, not so many years, but a few years to make my own wine is like, you got to be able to sell it. And any producer will tell you that like the sales part is the hardest part and maybe even the most time consuming if you look at it on you know your whole year. And so I wanted to make sure that I had relationships with restaurants. I probably won't go with distribution right away because I'm too small and it's gonna eat my profit margins. So I wanted to make sure I can hand sell these wines. And so like A, I wanna know how to do that. Working in retail is a great way to figure out what things you can say to a customer that will make them interested and wanna buy that particular bottle. Um, storytelling, huge component of selling wine. What is my story? How do I talk about it? You know, I clearly have a lot of work to do on that front because I've been rambling. <laughs> That's my fault mostly. <laughs> but um, 
So anyway, that's kind of my strategy was to build myself relationships. And then when I had wine to sell, I could rely on those. Mm -hmm. And then the next one is like, because I've traveled to Europe quite a lot and, and we sell wine in Europe at Twill, like we have, we sell wine in England and in, in Denmark. And I took a trip and spent some time in Sweden last year. And this is a, this is a cool story. So I go to Sweden, I'm in Gothenburg, I'm staying in the Post Clarion Hotel. And the restaurant that just happens to be in the bottom of that hotel has the largest wine list of Oregon wines in all of Europe. And I didn't know that. Like I just, you know, I'm at the hotel, I go down, I have dinner, they hand me the wine list, I'm looking at it and I'm just like, there's probably 50 pages in this thing of just Oregon wines and like back vintages, like Artiberry Marsh going back to 2008, like all this really great stuff. And the sommelier comes over and I'm just like, dude, what, tell me about this restaurant. Like this wine list is incredible. I've never seen anything like this. I'm from Oregon, I make wine, I'm thousands of miles from home and like so many of my friends' wines are on this list, like this is amazing. And the sommelier was like, yeah, we're huge on Oregon, we absolutely love these wines, like we think they go so well with Swedish food. And they rolled out the red carpet for me, I mean this was a big restaurant, probably a hundred tables, I think they had six or seven different people on staff that were a part of the wine team, if you will. And over the course of my dinner, like every single one of them came up to my table one at a time, introduced themselves. It's so nice to have a winemaker from Oregon here. Like, let us know if you need anything. And the, my brain just goes, I got to sell wine here. Like, they're so into it. They were so passionate and so knowledgeable about Oregon. Like, they knew the producers. They knew the vintages. They knew all these minute details about the people and the wines. So I was like, this is amazing. So part of my sales strategy is actually, I'm just going to go pretty much straight for an export market, like right away. As soon as I have wine in bottle, I'm gonna to go to Sweden, I'm gonna to go to Denmark, I'm gonna to go to England, I'm gonna to try to go to events, you know, like salons, fets, whatever they're called. And, you know, I'd love to sell wine in France and Italy and Spain and Germany and, and places like that. And, you know, I can tell you right off the bat, one of the nice things about working with distributors, say in like Europe is, you know, a lot of times their minimum order is gonna be a pallet. A pallet would be an absolutely massive sale for someone who only makes 300 some odd cases. And so my hope and my goal is that I can go spend a couple weeks meeting distributors, sommeliers, kind of represent the wines in these markets before I even have distribution. And then hopefully someone wants to work with me, picks up a pallet. And if I can sell a pallet in those three or four countries in Europe right out of the gate and kind of try to maintain that and do that in perpetuity, I think I've set myself up pretty well. Um, and you know, a lot of those Distributors are great to work with too because like it's they pay before the wines get delivered and so you get cash flow and that's really helpful for a Person that doesn't have money to make wine next year yet. So it's like <laughs> you got to try to You know, maybe factor that in a little bit and just how the Oregon wines have been received internationally I think has been a big light bulb moment for me and, and is going to be a large part of my sales strategy um, so tell me about uh, sort of the other challenges you're looking at as you're starting your brand and kind of how you're looking to grow it over the next few years. Yeah, so in addition to the challenges of, you know, coming up with a sales strategy and like uh, making the wines and learning how to tell your story, one of the other challenges that I'm going through right now and coming up with a name, extremely challenging, um, is pricing. Pricing is something I'm thinking a lot about now, doing a lot of research searching my soul, I guess you would say, to try to find out maybe what price points feel right. And, you know, to be clear, I don't think I'll decide until I've tasted the wines. Like, I'm not going to end up deciding to price the wines at a place where I don't feel like the quality to value is there. But part of where coming up with pricing is really challenging and I think really interesting is as a young producer, 
I'm tempted to want to go in with like really low prices. Like maybe the single vineyard designate wines are $36 on the shelf and you know, the Willamette Valley or the Eola Amity Hills is, you know, in the twenties. And then I have a rosé that's like 15 bucks, like really kind of laying out almost no profitability being possible at, at some of those price points. There's a part of me that wants to do that because you have a little imposter syndrome, you know, no one knows these wines, no one's going to know they're good. Is someone going to want to drink it tomorrow if they, you know, spend X amount of dollars on it. And like we talked about earlier, my strategy is I want people pulling corks. I want, I don't want to price them so high that someone feels that they have to sell them because I want as many people as possible to taste these wines as, as quickly as possible. Um, and then, yeah, in years to come, we can change the style, make them a little bit more built for the seller and, you know, find a, find a good balance there. But where pricing is so interesting is like, okay, you price really low. Now to build in sustainability, I need to raise the prices in future years. But if you have to do that a lot, you're going to price out the first consumers that supported you. And they're, if they're buying my say top wine at $36 a bottle now, are they going to want to pay $56 in five years? Probably not. You may lose those people. I don't want that to happen. So there's a part of me in the conversation I'm having internally. It's like, do I go, do I go in kind of low and then, and then fight that battle to build the price up to where it needs to be so that I can have a sustainable project? Or do I start with the wines a little bit higher and then keep them there as I develop my style and get better with the sites and, and hopefully make better wine every year. It's, it's a question I really am philosophically kicking around a lot and finding, I think the right price for the wines maybe is going to come down to how they taste, what my gut tells me feels right. And then I also then, you know, need to look at my P and L at the end of the year and figure out what they actually cost. But I think it's a fascinating conversation for young and small producers that don't have a history of their brand it's like where do you enter the market are you going in at high end are you going in at sort of like entry level pricing and you know we, we all know that Oregon Pinot Noir is not inexpensive to make the, the fruit costs are high the cost of you know the production materials is high and then you also have their presence in the market where there's a massive variety of pricing you know there's really great Oregon Willamette Valley wines in, you know, around $20, $24 a bottle. But then you can also go and spend a couple hundred dollars a bottle and also get a really amazing wine. So it's like where, what feels right to me, where's that space where I can both be profitable and sustainable and continue to do this, which is the goal is to do business in perpetuity at this point. But then how do I also like create something that still offers value to my customers where they're going to want to buy more bottles, drink them more and feel like when they put their $30, their $40, their $50, that they got something that they would happily, you know, do again. Um, it's a really difficult conversation, I think, pricing. And maybe even between producers, like we don't talk about it that much. And, you know, for me, I'm just curious, like how, how do people arrive at their prices? And, and what examples are there of a winery that's changed its price and maybe seen sales either go up or down. You know, these are a lot of things I'm, conversations I'm trying to have with other producers and then also searching myself and finding what feels comfortable and right for me. How much of that is something that can be, is, that is driven by your consumer and how much of that is something you want to share with your consumer? How much of it is driven, I think the part of it that's driven by a consumer I might actually be trying to limit right now because 
as a consumer of Oregon wines and you know when you make wine like you want to at least have sometimes try really good wines and if you especially if you go to the old world the really good wines are very expensive um, and so there's a part of me that thinks you know if you're talking about French Pinot Noir a $55 bottle would be a bait that would be your entry point for a lot of producers maybe even more than that you know you're there's a lot of Bourgogne Rouge now that is over $100, some over $200 from, from the really great producers. I don't want to bring that, I don't want to bring that framework into my project because all the dynamics are different. But I also would say that I've noticed that Oregon Pinot Noirs have really gone up in price since I've been a part of the industry dramatically, like maybe even doubled in some, some scenarios. Some producers have more than doubled their prices in five years. And that's where you know, I think there's a little bit of a challenge is trying to, again, find that balance point for pricing in the market and figuring out like where you kind of sit. I want to be really open with my consumers about pricing. As, like I would be really happy to publish all of my financials like on my website. I'm, I don't want to keep any secrets. I don't want to keep any secrets about how the wines are made, what goes into the wines. You know, I want to put on the bottle like, you know, I consider myself a minimal intervention sort of like no additions kind of producer but i did have a ferment this year that i really felt called for a little bit of acid added to it so i did that i don't want to hide that i would love to disclose that even on the bottle like what does this contain you know in this vintage it contains grapes tartaric acid and so2 i think the same thing for me would apply to the financials like i'm very much considering as a part of my story as a part of my personality that i'm presenting or sharing with my customers is making all of that information very public, putting it on my website. Here's what I spent on fruit, here's what barrels cost, here's what my crush bill was, here's what I spent to make this wine and that's why it cost this. And I think, you know, I'm not sure whether or not that's a good idea. Like I, don't, I know other producers don't do that. There must be a reason why almost nobody does it. Or if, I don't know anyone frankly off the top of my head that is that granular with sharing their details. But for me, it's like a couple years ago on Instagram, I was posting like a lot of maybe technical detailed information about the winemaking process. And I'd never had that level of like engagement. Like I would have so many people reaching out, oh, I never knew that's how that happened or I didn't know this was done that way. And I think there was a part of me that thought, okay, there's an interest in explaining or demystifying what's going on here. And I think that same thing would apply to the finances too, right? Someone who's really into wine, why would they not be curious about, oh, okay, well I just paid, say I paid $45 for this bottle of single vineyard Oregon Pinot Noir. Like what went into that? You know, what did it cost? And I think a lot of consumers would be really surprised to see what the base costs are and not even factoring in, you know, winemaker labor, just like materials. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a conversation internally where I'm thinking about publishing all of that material every year and then let people do with it what they will. So you talked a little bit in that answer about what's what how you've seen the Oregon wine industry change since you've been part of it. Mm -hmm. Tell me about a little about your sort of initial impressions of Oregon's wine industry and the people making wine here, and and how those impressions have changed as you've started making wine and started to, started to get to know more and more people. Yeah, I mean, impressions. I think my first impressions of the Oregon wine trade, the people that I had met, was like, what an beautiful, open, gracious community in so many ways. Um, certainly not the most diverse, and that's where I've seen a lot of change in the last five years. I think there's a lot more 
you know, people of color, women, younger people. Like there's been a massive influx of variety and diversity in the wine trade. Maybe not a massive influx, maybe that's not the right word, but there's definitely been some movement in that regard. And I, I very much appreciate that, um, try to, you know, contribute to that where I can. I don't fit into those categories myself, but I, I definitely like want our industry to be as diverse as possible and have as many voices as we can trying to tell wine stories. Because at the end of the day, like we're in the people business. We just do it through the lens of wine. Um, and so I think, yeah, my initial impressions very much like really open people, very generous, like a lot of people willing to share knowledge, stories, their time. People are really motivated, passionate. They want to talk about what they're doing. They want to talk about what they're into. So I think it's really easy to find connections, make relationships, build communities. Um, I think there, there are a lot of inroads for that. There are a few things I'd still like to see the Oregon wine community continue to move towards. And this is maybe where I feel like I can contribute to the conversation a little bit. One of them would be like around harvest. Like I love the way that the old world handles harvest in a lot of scenarios at least where like pe the laborers, people that are coming to help pick the grapes are staying with the producer and they're staying together and they're sharing dinner together and lunch together and they're building a community around the harvest. That's something I would like to try to do. I know there are producers in Oregon that are doing that and I think it's beautiful and I, I want to contribute to that as well and help build more communities and treat it less like, you know, we're just hiring laborers that are going to pick these grapes and then, you know, I'm not going to see them again and, and, you know, things like that. I think there's an element where I would like to help build a little bit more of a structured community around specifically harvest, the, you know, even the making of the wines. Like I want to have my family come and friends, like my partner came this year and helped me do punch downs and pump overs and like, you know, run bricks on the white wine ferments. And my dad was here during harvest and helped me, you know, out with the pick and, and, you know, pulling leaves out of the bins and helping drive the fruit to the winery and helping me with the ferments. Like it, it felt really nice to expand that community and bring more people into that space and I'd like to do that on a grander scale and and maybe make something that feels a little bit more old world um, I think the Oregon wine community has a lot of of that camaraderie but like during harvest it becomes pretty insular like everyone goes to their cellars and yeah you visit your friends and you go taste here and see what people are up to there but I don't know there's a part of me that wants to like increase that connection what else do you see coming for the future of Oregon wine what are you looking forward to what are you maybe fearful of what are you excited about yeah, it's a good question. What do I see coming in the future? I, I see there's going to be an exploration of different grape varietals, which I think is really exciting. Like, I think a lot of people are planting, whether it's like Aligote, Pinot Meunier, like other cold climate varietals that work in similar climates in, in France or other places. I think that's definitely happening. Maybe you'll see an increase in Chardonnay plantings. And I think it's a really healthy thing for Oregon to have maybe a little bit less Pinot Noir. As a producer that right now only makes Pinot Noir, I can see that's a little bit, you know, contrary, but I do think that's maybe the general direction. Oregon Chardonnay has been hugely successful, I think, in, in the market. And so maybe more plantings of that. I think as the climate warms, I think some places, frankly, in my opinion, Oregon are already probably too warm to have Pinot Noir. So maybe you'll see other varietals, whether it's Cabernet Franc, Syrah, there's already some Syrah in the valley, maybe there will be more. So I think from a great perspective, there will be just will be less dominant on Pinot Noir and there will be more things that find their their way in. And I think that'll be really healthy and really exciting. I would love to work with 
Ali Gote so much. Um, if anyone seeing this has Ali Gote planted and is looking for a winemaker to work with, please reach out to me because it's a, a brilliant varietal that I think holds its acid so well at, at warmer temperatures and at higher bricks and, and could really do well in Oregon in the long term. Things I'm excited about, yeah, just the continued sort of diversification of the Oregon wine industry, having more unique voices here. Um, I think talking about our wines internationally is something I'm really excited about. Like as I'm traveling and wanting to kind of tell the story of Oregon to other communities that have their own, you know, bustling wine trades in those countries. But, you know, talking about it in an Oregon context, I think would be really exciting. Um, gosh, I mean, I don't see it slowing down. It feels like there's still a lot of like myself, like maybe younger producers that are branching off and starting their own projects. And, you know, I would love to see a little bit of a, a decentralization, if you will, like less of an emphasis on the 20 to 50,000 case wineries and just have more 500 to 2000 case wineries. I think it's really cool and also leads to diverse voices because you don't have to have such a high bar of entry to be able to make wine. Um, we're seeing more like custom crush facilities being built to, to house small producers. And I think that's really exciting. And I would like to see that increase. I think we need, we still need more. We need more facilities to make wine. Um, yeah, I'm thoroughly excited about where the Oregon wine community is going. I think the farming here is done at such a high level. And I think a lot of the plantings are done very um, thoughtfully and I think that that really helps and and there's a great exchange of information between producers here which obviously helps you know the industry and um, yeah I hope that's a an aggregate answer on sort of excitement looking towards the future I think the viticulture if we talk about the future like where are we seeing the most rapid changes we're seeing like really crazy weather patterns we're seeing big snows in April and really dry years and I think you know, some of that is going to be how is Pinot Noir's ability to adapt to that. We know Pinot Noir is a thin-skinned, finicky grape that's prone to all kinds of different diseases. And I think that growers just planting different varietals will give us a better opportunity to make good wines every year. And you've already talked a bit about the future for yourself and the future for your brand. Anything else you're looking ahead to, either on a professional level or personal level, that has you excited? Shoot, right now, no. I mean, I think, like, being able to make wines and put them in bottle and put my own label on it is something that I've wanted to do for, the, you know, the better part of a decade now. And the fact that I'm doing that is really, I think, kind of captured my attention at the moment. And I do want to grow that project, but very s slowly and very intentionally. You know, this year I'll make 375 cases. Next year I'd like to make 500 if I can, you know, find a, a Chardonnay source to add, maybe just a few barrels. Um, so, you know, try to grow the winery that way, build build community around it, you know, um, invite more people to partake in whether it's getting their hands dirty during harvest or, you know, maybe helping me sell the wines and traveling and doing things like that, I think is all really exciting. But at the moment, I'm not spending a lot of time thinking about the future if I'm honest I'm spending a lot of time thinking about what do I have in barrel what, do, what does it need you know a lot of the legal stuff takes a lot of my time right now like permits and insurance and applying for labels and colas and all these different things are really a huge part I think of what we do as winemakers that doesn't get talked about a lot or you don't see um, so I'm spending a lot of time doing those specific things right now and making sure that when these wines are ready to be bottled that 
you know, I have all those things in place to be able to pull that off. So that's mainly where my focus is right now. Um, I probably won't travel this year, which will be the first in a while. I'll take that time off to save as much of my mental capacity as possible for like, for the wine project. It, it needs time and attention right now. I need to decide on a name. I need to decide on label designs. I need to decide on the rest of packaging. Like, I know what corks I want to use. I know how I want to, you know, finish them. I like wax. I don't like capsules. So there's things like that that I, you know, have already determined. Like, I know what glass I want to work with. But the big one right now is, yeah, names and labels and, and getting some of the sort of legal stuff ironed out. What is something that you're proud of accomplishing? Right now, I'm proud of accomplishing being able to start small, make wine without having to borrow money or take on any investors. I think that was huge for me. Being able to do this all myself and not at the smallest scale. Like I'm, I crushed six tons of fruit this year and, you know, filled 14 barrels and that feels incredible right now. It feels like fake. I've, I've been moved to tears multiple times driving. I remember driving up from the Eola Amity Hills after like a pick one time and I just like, you know, just tears started rolling down my face because it felt for a little while like it maybe wasn't gonna happen because it is so expensive and like and I you know I got laid off in 2020 and that put a really that delayed things financially for a while and so I would say right now I'm the most proud of having been able to pull that off and maintain all the other things that I'm doing I don't think anything had to suffer like you know my my clients that I'm working on photography projects with and doing websites with and doing data work with you know my work at the wine shop didn't didn't have to stop um i think that felt really good to know that i could do this and still maintain the other elements of you know my involvement in the wine trade that are really important to me knowing that i could balance that you know sure at this scale yeah five years from now if i'm making twice as much wine or three times as much wine as i'm making now that that might change a little bit but at least in the moment i'm really proud that i was able to keep all those plates spinning and, and get these wines in barrel and, and feel really good about them. I'm really excited with how they taste and I'm really proud right now to follow them on their evolution. It's November 2023. Tell us about all the different ways you're involved in the wine industry at the moment. Cool. Yeah, so in addition to making wines for my own label, which again is yet to be named, um, I'm also a seller hand assistant with Chris at Twill Cellars. Uh, I'm working at ENR Wine Shop in Portland and I work with a marketing company called Vinbound Marketing. My, my partner's name is Brian, and we do photography, website design, and data migrations for wineries. And, and then, yeah, the photography part is also still very active and, and ongoing and doing projects in Oregon, Washington, and uh, you know, sometimes in France. If, if I'm traveling and one of the winemakers there wants a couple shots, I'm, I'm happy to oblige. So yeah, right now, those are the capacities that I'm, I'm working in the wine trade. Amazing. Thank you so much yeah. for your time. Absolutely. Sharing your story with us. Sharing Rich, this it was a pleasure. On a beautiful November day. In the yeah, it is a really nice day, huh? Nice and dry. It wasn't too cold out here. I got a little sunlight. I'm happy. It's a good day. Let you off the hook. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. 
Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.